then we'll we get a little chorus, a little beat chorus inside the hymn notes. If you can grab it, we'll sing it. It said the wording from uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. I'm going to sing it uh, three times and we're going to try to transpose it every time we sing, sing it. And then uh, I'm going to tell you this. It's not in the it's not in the music, but at the very end when we sing the uh, Let Us Love One Another, we add 1 John 4, 7 and 8. All right. Super Bowl Sunday, in case some of you care to know, but the first Super Bowl, the tickets cost, in 1967, the first Super Bowl ticket cost, would you like to take a guess? dollars $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $12. $
I've asked Nathan to teach this morning, and so we're always happy to hear him uh, teach the Bible. So the kids will dismiss, the rest of us will stay right here, and then after that we'll have a short break, and then we will have a short prayer time, and then the, after, uh, the 1025 service. this year, but so far we're only up to verse 10, <laughs> and so we'll be in it for a while, but that's okay. We are enjoying it. <clears throat> I don't know that the people who listen enjoy it as much as I enjoy studying it and learning from it myself. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking, spending our time in verses 10 and 11, but before we do that, let me set the stage for you with what is going on. <clears throat> in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I have a note to myself that reminds me that the weakest ink is better than the best memory because I would have forgotten this, but I wrote it down here. I wrote a note to myself to remind me to tell, to encourage you to pray for Joel Dezer. He is a missionary and he and several other people were kidnapped in Haiti and um, his family is apparently in the U.S. right now, but he was there and was kidnapped apparently this week. So we need to pray for Joel Desir. If you know how to say that name, D-E-S-I-R, the correct way, please let us know. Um, so let's, let's pray for him right now before we forget that. Father, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together. We thank you for the liberty that we have. We Thank you for everyone that is here, everyone that is coming. Uh, we thank you for uh, the Bible. We thank you for letting us have the perfect Word of God to show us the way, to show us our Savior, and to show us our God. And uh, <clears throat> we ask you, Father, to have mercy on Brother Joel and those that are with him. <clears throat> we ask you to bring them all back safely to your families and in everything we pray that you be glorified through what they're enduring right now we pray you comfort and strengthen their families at this time we ask you father this morning to speak to us to meet the needs of our hearts and to lift up magnify glorify the lord jesus christ our savior we pray in his holy name amen mark chapter one the background of what we're about to look at is that the lord jesus christ uh, was baptized by John the Baptist. You know, I love the Gospel of Mark for several reasons. I love the Gospel of Mark because it is the earliest Gospel. It's the first one of the four that were written. Um, it's the easiest to understand Gospel. Mark was written so that anybody could pick it up and read it and get a, a pretty good idea of who Jesus is. And it's also the essential Gospel, meaning if you have, uh, of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark not to say the others aren't needed, but essential meaning that everything that you need to know to get an idea of who Jesus is and what he did while on this earth is in the Gospel of Mark. And so, <clears throat> wonderful little book, only 16 chapters, but everything we need is there. 
if God gave us only one gospel and he gave us the gospel of Mark, that would be enough to know who the Savior is and why we need him. Also, we come down to this section here. It's when Jesus was baptized. Now, John was baptizing people for the remission of sins. That is, I believe what that probably means is that <clears throat> because they had uh, repented and received remission of sins. It says the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Because they had repented and had had their sins forgiven, they were being baptized to show, to show uh, that repentance. So why was Jesus baptized? At least two reasons. Number one, to identify with sinners. If they were sinners who were being baptized, Jesus had no sin, he had no need to repent, and yet he was baptized. And so he was baptized to identify with sinners. He came to die for our sins, to take our place on the cross for our sins. He identified with sinners. Also, he was baptized to instruct believers. To instruct believers. Go to the end. This is the beginning of the chapter of the book. If you were to go to the end of the book, chapter 16, he would, he would tell, you'll see that he told his apostles, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them. Baptize them. And so <clears throat> every believer is expected to be baptized. Not to be saved, but in evidence, in evidence of faith. In fact, there are three words that come to mind when you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And... Jesus was baptized, and you see the method of his baptism. He wasn't sprinkled. John didn't say, oh, hold on, let me get a cup of water and sprinkle some water in your face. He didn't say, let me get a bucket and pour it over your head. These are different methods of baptism that have been used throughout church history. John took him in the water and immersed him in the water and brought him out of the water. You see that in John and Mark chapter 1. Jesus was baptized of John and Jordan, verse 10, and straightway coming up out of the water. It's very plain. The method of baptism is immersion. Um, <clears throat> the method of baptism is important because it speaks of a message. The method of baptism is important because it points to a message. The message of baptism is that as a believer in Christ, when I enter the water and when I come up out of the water, I'm giving a testimony. I'm giving a testimony that I have believed on the Savior who died, was buried, and rose again. I am with him, I'm crucified with him, and I have now have newness of life. It is, it is saying, in so many words, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then, there's a mandate for baptism. It, it, it seems like, in modern Christianity, baptism has become a, a secondary issue. You can, you can't, it's up to you. If can, can. If no can, no can. Uh, if like, like. If no like, no like. But but it's a mandate. He says, he in Mark 16, he's, the Lord said these words that we don't like. And it makes sense if you understand what it means. But we don't like it because we have to explain it. He said, he that, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. So, what does that mean? Basically, what that means is you're not saved by being baptized. You're saved in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he who is truly born again will 
joyfully follow the Lord in believers' baptism. Um, <clears throat> that is that is a mandate. Yeah. So if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you need to be the right way. So that's what's going on in Mark chapter one, verse nine and ten. And now we come to <coughs> verse uh, verse ten again. And straightway, straightway means immediately, right away. I think it's something like 44 times. Uh, Mark uses the word straightway or immediately uh, in this in this book. <clears throat> the Lord is on the move. He is a man of action. He's always going, doing something. Because in, in Mark, he is the perfect servant of the Lord. Verse 9, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There is a very plain, obvious truth in these three verses that are easy to miss. And yet, it hit me a few, within the last few days. This is a unique and absolute, a truly unique event. A.W. Tozer said we, we use the word unique, but only God is unique. Only God is truly unique. And this is what people call a God moment. And it is. It's unique because God did something in these verses recorded at this event that he did at no other time in all the Bible, as far as I know. And what was that? Well, let's get some background on that. The first truth that we need to know in background is that God is a triune God. God is a trinity. But not every member of the trinity is visibly noticeable in every situation in which God works. So many times in the book of Judges, for example, you, say, you see that the Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody, Samson, or Jephthah, or Gideon. And he came upon them to, to empower them to do some mighty work. The Spirit of the Lord at, time, at one time came on, uh, once or twice came on Saul. And then he left him. The Spirit of the Lord came on David and gave him power to fight battles. And you see the Spirit of the Lord in that, in those passages. And then you see times where there are prophecies of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't use his name, but it's very plainly that's that person of the Godhead being exalted. And then in most cases in the Old Testament, you see the Lord, all capitals, that's talking about God the Father. Many passages of Scripture refer to all three persons of the Godhead within a section of Scripture, several verses altogether, or in one verse. After the service, there's a handout sheet back there that lists 26 verses that contain references to all three persons of the Godhead in, in, one, one, in, in, in a verse. 26 verses. It might say, He for referring to Christ, but if you do like I do, and you, when you study your Bible, you draw arrows back to see who is he. You go back up the page, oh, it's Christ. Or sometimes he is referring to the Father, but they're all three there in, the, in these passages. Um, 
there are some examples <coughs> there uh, on that paper. Um, but here, here is one of those examples. Mark chapter 1, you see in verse 9, Jesus, that's the Son. In verse 10, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son. That's the Father speaking. This is an example of one of those passages that has all three persons of the Godhead mentioned, all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in one passage. But that's not what's so special about this passage. There's something very special about this passage or this event. Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded this event in this way. John referred to it, but John didn't give all the details that are here. John gave some other details. But the first truth that you need to see before we move on and we see what is so special, what is so unique about this passage is that the triune God is here at work. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 1 John 5, 7. One more truth in, in laying groundwork to understand why this is unique. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. But He is not manifested in every place at all times to human senses. And so, look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and we'll begin at verse number 7. Psalm 139, verse number 7. <clears throat> whither shall I go, or where shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Uh, David is asking a rhetorical question. Is there any place I can go to get away from your presence, O God? And the answer implied is no. There's no place you can go to get away from God. The next verse. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. Oh, we, understand. we know that. God's in heaven. His throne is in the heavens. If, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Uh-oh. How can that be? If I take the wings of the morning, that's a poetic way of saying, if I could grab a hold of, or if I could ride on the sunbeams, because when the sun rises, some of you sometimes get up early enough to see the sunrise. When the sun rises, sometimes, especially over the ocean, those beams come up, and they look like wings. If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. David is talking about the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. God is everywhere at all times. So it makes sense to us that if someone could ascend up into heaven that God would be there. But how can it be? How can we understand the next part of verse 8? If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Does this mean that God is in hell? We would say, no, God's not in hell. And yet David said, if I make my bed in hell, thou art there. He didn't say thou wilt be there. Thou art there. I like how I've been teaching. I teach all the kids Psalm 23 when they're little. And Ethan has been working on Psalm 23. You should hear him say some of Psalm 23 sometimes. But the other day when I was, we came to the verse about, um, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. In his four-year-old mind, he thought art, A-R-T, is R. Means art. 
So he said, thou art, thou art not with me. <laughs> That's not what it means. Uh, God is there, according to what David said. How can God be in hell? We always say that the worst part of hell is not the fire, although that's true. The worst part of hell is that a man who is in hell will be forever separated from the presence of God. So how can David say thou art there? There it is in plain scripture. How can that be? How can that be? If, if it's true that God is everywhere, and if God is even in hell, how can... We also understand verses like this, written by David also, same author. Psalm 27, verse 9. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. So how can David say, if I go up to heaven, you'll be there. If I go to hell, you're there too. But don't leave me. Don't put me far away from me. How could that possibly be? Is David schizophrenic? Is he thinking with, with two halves of his brain not connected? What is David thinking? How can we understand this? Psalm 22, verse 11. Psalm 22, verse 19. Psalm 35, 22. Psalm 38, 21. Psalm 71, 12. All say, either be not far from me, or be not thou far from me. Talking to the Lord. Some of these are written by David. Okay, if, I, if we can interview David, Mr. David, King David, Your Majesty, I have a question, sir. <laughs> in Psalm 20, in Psalm uh, 139, you wrote that if you went into hell and you, you slept in hell, that God would be there. But then you said that in, in several other places that uh, if that you, you asked God not to be far from you. So, Mr. Mr. David, <clears throat> Your Majesty, please. Tell us, please explain what you mean. That would be an interesting interview, wouldn't it? What about this? Psalm 51, verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He said in Psalm 139, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? And then in Psalm 51, he said, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So if God is omnipresent, why would David even be worried about God casting him out of his presence? How is that possible? Maybe this verse in Matthew, verse, Matthew chapter 15 contains an answer. Look at Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. God is omnipresent. And yet, people, the Bible speaks of people being far from God. The Bible speaks of God turning his face away from people. How can this be? Psalm, uh, Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse number 8. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. God is not physically or geographically far from us. And we are not physically or geographically far from God. 
uh, in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul preached at Athens, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. And he wasn't talking to saved people. He was talking to unsaved people. He was talking to idol worshipers, saying, we live in God because God is everywhere. We cannot escape God. By the way, there's a big difference between saying we live and move within God and saying God is in everything. There's a huge difference. God is not physically or geographically far from any of us. We're not physically or geographically far from Him. But in heart, we can be far from God. Or we can be near to God. This people, he said, this people draweth nigh. They draw nigh. They, they come near. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it must be that what he's talking about, at least in one, in one way, is that in our hearts, the attitude of our hearts determines whether we are near to God or far from God. In fact, Peter and James both make this plain. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you, says James in chapter 4. And James 4, verse 8, or is it 5, 8? And both James and Peter say this in a slightly different way. Both of them say, God resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. In other words, God, uh, to put it this way, God puts his hands out this way to those who are proud. Those people are far from God. And God holds his hands out this way to those who are humble. He welcomes them. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so being near to God, being far from God is not a matter of location, but a matter of heart condition. Heart condition. The attitude of your heart. The attitude of your heart toward God will determine how you perceive His presence. Think about these two, these two verses in contrast. Psalm 9, verse 3. When my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. That is, in the face of God, they'll fall and turn back. Because they've got a glimpse of God showing his power. But because their heart attitude is wrong, they respond in fear. They run away. But then Psalm 1611, I love that first number. Psalm 1611, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So how can how can he how can the psalmist say some people will run away from God's presence and some people will delight in God's presence? What is the difference? The difference is the attitude of the heart. And so when God shows himself, when God manifests himself to somebody, the way that their heart is directed to or against him will determine how they perceive his presence. God is omnipresent, but he's not always 
manifested. In a sense, we could say that right now we are tasting a little bit of the glory of God. The Bible says the earth is full of his glory. When you woke up this morning and looked out your window and saw the sunrise, that should have made you think of the glory of God. That's a taste of the glory of God. The other day, one of my sons and I hiked up the backside of uh, Lanikai, and we watched the moon set, and then on the other side of the ridge, we watched the sunrise. That was awesome. And the wind was blowing, that sea breeze coming. We just stood up there after that hike up there, and Mood on this side, sun on that side. It was so pretty. The glory of God. And yet in a cursed and fallen world. But that's not God manifesting, showing forth all of his glory. In fact, Moses asked God, show me thy glory. And God said, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. A cleft of the rock. And I'm going to cover you with my hand and I will pass before you and you will see my backsides. I guess that means God passed, God showed himself somehow. What's the, what's the word theophany? God, probably Christ himself came and showed Moses a glimpse with his face covered. Moses' face was covered when God passed before him. It wasn't even God's face that shone upon him. But when Moses came down from the mountain, the Bible says the people were afraid because Moses' face shone. That's weird. But it's awesome, isn't it? Just spending time with God it affected his, his countenance. You can tell a lot from someone's countenance. You can tell a lot if they're walking with God or not from their countenance. He had to cover his face with the veil. Isn't that funny? The great leader of Israel walking around with a, with a sheet with a pillowcase on his head. Because his face was glowing. Just from seeing God pass by with his face covered. You know, there were British sailors on a, on a British ship in World War II when they were testing the atomic bombs out, of, out at sea. And they didn't know what was happening, but they told these sailors... There's going to be something bright, so cover your eyes. And no one knew what was going to happen. Some of them had handkerchiefs, some of them covered their eyes. One man said, I mean, they were, they were miles away. He said, when the blast went off, he said, I could see the bones in my fingers. With his eyes closed, and I think he said he was facing away from the blast. But the, it was so bright. You know, it, it, if man can do that with something that God made, splitting atoms, how much brighter, how much more glorious is God in his glory? You know, all these, these modern songs about, I want to see your glory, I want to touch your face. Don't go there. Don't go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that God has shown the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you don't get it from spending time and learning about and worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, don't try to get it some other way. Yeah. By the way, I like what uh, 
comedian. I won't even give his name because a lot of his stuff is kind of nonsense. But I really agree with something I saw that he said recently. He said the reason a lot of men don't sing in churches today is because the songs are written from a very feminine perspective. He said these songs say, I want to see your face. I want to touch your face. He said the guy's going, that's weird. <laughs> Can you stop that? Because I brought a friend today. It's just kind of weird. That's not how, that's not how a man thinks. And guys, if you think like that, maybe you need to see a doctor. I don't know. But, um, when Moses said, show me thy glory, he wanted to know that God was real. He wanted to know that God was powerful. He wanted to get a glimpse of the God that he loved. But not this, this gushy, mushy, romantic, romanticizing fellowship with God. It's blasphemy. Singing to God as if he is your lover. And I don't mean the way Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, lover of my soul. I don't mean that. I mean my sweetheart, my cool weepo, my teenager. No, 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 no. There's only once in all the Holy Bible, one event, recorded three times, one event, Happened one time when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were manifested in a way that people, human beings, could sense with human senses. Mark chapter 1. Let's look there again. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Verse 10, straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. Verse 11, and there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the creation, the Bible tells us in several verses that all three persons of the Godhead were active, but it doesn't tell us that they were, there was no man to see it, no man to hear it. Each person of the Trinity was involved in the death and in the resurrection of Christ. But you didn't hear the voice of God and you didn't see any visible representation of the Holy Spirit in either of those two events. When a person is saved, according to Ephesians chapter 1, all three persons, each member of the Godhead is active. The Father selects the sinner. The Son saves the sinner. And the Holy Spirit seals the sinner in Ephesians chapter 1. But you don't see it happen. You don't hear anything. You don't taste anything. You don't feel anything. You don't smell anything. Happen. But in this event, Mark chapter 1, also Matthew chapter 3, and Luke chapter 3, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three, are not only present, but manifested manifested, shown to those nearby. It's obvious that Jesus was there 
He was the one being baptized. The Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. I don't quite understand what that means. Does that mean that a dove came down and landed on him? Or does that mean that the Holy Spirit came down and he looked like a dove? Or does that mean that he, the gospel writers just said, that looks like a dove, that's the best description? Whatever the case may have been, John said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, bodily descend on him. I saw. John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit. And then, of course, the Father spoke. So the Son was physically present. The Holy Spirit was visible. And the Father spoke audibly. Three senses God gave man. John touched him when he put him in the water. John saw the Holy Spirit come down. And John and the people around heard the voice of the Father. This is a unique event. This is a special event. Why did God choose at this event, at this one moment in history, how long did it take to say the words, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? Ten seconds at the most? One time. In all of history. One time. In all of history. Stephen Mansfield describes history this way. He says that, he says, think of a the tube inside of a paper towel roll. You finish the paper towels and you have that cardboard tube. He said, think of that tube as time. And not just time like this is an hour, but think of that tube as here at the beginning, this end, this is Genesis 1-1. This is the creation. And think of this end as Revelation 22. This is the end of all time. And, and everything that happens in, in time, from the creation to the end of the world, happens inside that tube. Outside of that tube, there's an endless expanse, and that's eternity. He says, we live in that tube. Everything that happens in time, everything that happens in human history, everything that happens in the affairs of men, happens in that little tube. And there's only one time in all of eternity before mankind in the little tube of human history that God in all three persons made himself manifested to human beings. And it was the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be an important event. It must have been an important event. I'm not going to use that as a Baptist and say, see, baptism is important. What I'm going to say is, look at who was the central focus of this event. It's obvious in this event that the Son of God was the person of the Godhead on whom all the Godhead focused. John was doing the baptizing, so the act was called John's baptism, but the event was the baptism of Jesus, the Son of God. 
Again, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. The Holy Spirit visibly descended on Jesus in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, upon Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit fluttered and everyone said, oh, they drew their attention away from Jesus and said, oh, look at that. No. The Holy Spirit came and landed on and rested on Jesus. And everyone said, oh. In fact, John said that, look, let's look at John chapter 1. <clears throat> John chapter 1. By the way, uh, when you read John, remember that John the Apostle wrote about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In a chapter in John chapter 1. Verse 30, 32. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. By the way, the Holy Spirit is the heavenly Holy Spirit. He's not this um, earth spirit, earth God. If you go down to Manoa Falls, there's a visitor center before you go into the falls, and they have a painting of... Uh, it's a beautiful painting, mostly, of a Hawaiian forest. But blended into the forest, there's a, a goddess blended in. And you can see, and that's the earth goddess. The Holy Spirit is not of the earth. He is from heaven. He's from above. He comes from outside. And when he comes, he brings great blessing. Amen. But look what it says here. I saw the Spirit. John said, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. It didn't land on him and fly away. It abode upon him. It stayed there. He stayed with the Son. Verse 33, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, that is, the Father sent him, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And so in John's eyes, whoever received the Holy Spirit landing on him and staying on him, that is the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, you have the Son being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And then in Mark chapter 1, again, Mark chapter 1, Verse 11, <clears throat> the Father spoke to him. The Father spoke to him. Let me change the emphasis. The, the Father spoke to him. He was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The Father spoke to him. The Father and the Holy Spirit are focusing all the attention on the Son. On the Son. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew records this sentence a little bit differently. Read it one more time here in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, before we look at Matthew. Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Look at Matthew. Chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And lo, 
Lo is an old English word for look, behold. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see the difference? It's just one word. Just one word's difference. In Mark, Mark and Luke record that he said, Thou, you, singular, thou art my beloved Son. Speaking to him, in Matthew chapter 3, he said, This is my beloved Son. Is there a difference in meaning? There is a difference. There is a difference. Now, look, I know the camera's here. I'm going to step away from the camera for a minute to make this point. Ethan, you are my son. I love you. Ethan. Oh, everybody, this is Ethan. He's my son, and I love him. Is there a difference? There is a difference. Third person and first person. <laughs> Did these two contradict? Did they get it wrong? Did they get their wires crossed? No, they recorded two different angles of hearing. What, but the point is, I think that God said both. I think God might have said both. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Thou art my beloved son. What's, what, why? Why would God do that? Well, perhaps... Matthew recorded that way to show that God wanted everybody to know. That's my son. That's my son. I love him. I am well pleased. I'm delighted in him. And maybe Mark and Luke record, Thou art my beloved son. To show us a glimpse of how much the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man on this earth, needed to hear the Father's affection. Father's approval. You know what boys need? They need they need several things from their fathers, but they need at least these two things. They need dad's affection, dad's love, and they need dad's approval. And I don't care how old you are. If your dad is living, you still want that from your dad. You want to know dad loves you? You want to know dad approves and so I learned this from my dad my kids bring me pictures oh my kids draw so many pictures my wife had to make a new law we're going to give you a notebook at Christmas time a blank book and you may draw a picture per week in the book <laughs> Because we had papers. And if you've been to my house unannounced, you've probably seen it. Papers just, just they, like they get married and they have children in my house. Like there's a paper factory in my house. There's papers everywhere. And there's drawings. And my kids bring me their drawings. And so it happens usually every week, a few times. My boys bring me a paper with something on it. In varying degrees of, of artistic ability. Sometimes the four-year-old brings me something. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. What is that? Real? Oh, it's the Lone Ranger? I thought it was an apple. 
And my dad taught me, you don't throw those things away. You keep everything your kids give you. So I have a special place for them. And it's not the trash can. I, I keep all those things. Sometimes I put them on the wall. You know why? They need to know daddy approves. But they also need to know something beyond daddy approves. They need to know daddy's affection. Come here. It's not just for no reason. Come here, you. Come sit on my lap. I love you. you come here. Michelle, come. 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 Quickly. Come. Come. Quickly. The other day he said something profound. I sent him to the bathroom to brush his teeth. And then when I got there, he wasn't there. I said, Ethan, where are you? And he came down the hallway. And he said something so so smart. Come. He said something so smart to me. He said, Where's that bus? With your mouth. With your thumb in He said, I can't walk fast with my thumb in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was smart, wasn't it? Yeah. All right. Now, uh, I, I'm not doing this to say, look at me, I'm a great dad. I'm just saying a, a visible illustration of what I think I see here. You know why they need this? And every night I put, not him, because he's getting too big now. He still asks me almost every night, Daddy, will you carry me to bed? He's blocking the microphone. Uh, but the other one, I, I put him in bed. So the, the two-year-old, who's getting heavy now, too. So, but you can pretend to be the two-year-old, okay? Yeah. I put him in bed, and I say, I say, I love you. And now he says it back, I love you. I say, night-night. I say, I'll see you tomorrow. Bow, bow. <laughs> and then he asked me, uh, how's he say it? Daddy. Uh, how's he say that? Kid might me, which means please turn on the Christmas lights for me. <laughs> because in the room he stays in, there's, the Christmas lights are still up. <laughs> because daddy is lazy. <laughs> and so, uh, can I put you down, please? Look at my grandma. That's a little boy, and they need affection that way. But even men need to know that. No, we don't. We don't want dad to kiss us. My dad doesn't kiss me. I like to hug every now and again. But <clears throat> they men need to know dad approves and dad is dad loves them. And the father did that for the son. He said, "They aren't my beloved son." That means you're the son I love. And it was before he had done anything. Before I mean, he was 30 years old, he hadn't done a miracle. He, he hadn't uh, defeated Satan in the temptation. He hadn't preached any sermon. He hadn't died for our sin. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. And the father said, I love you and I approve of you. And that set the course for the next three years. Why is it such a unique moment? Why is it so important? It's important to Jesus because it got him ready for what he was about to go through for the next three and a half years. But also, also, it's important to you and me. If the Father thought it was so important to show up 
in, in a, a way that people could hear and people could see the Father and the Holy Spirit show up and converge as it were or manifest with the Son and, and God said I am well pleased in other words I delight in you I take pleasure in you you're the one I enjoy what does that imply for you and me What does that mean for you and me? The German pastor, several hundred years ago, who wrote these words in a hymn, his only hymn translated into English. Ask ye what great thing I know that delights and stirs me so? What the high reward I win? Who's the name I glory in? Jesus Christ, the crucified. This is that great thing I know. This delights and stirs me so. Faith in him who died to save. Him who triumphed o'er the grave. Jesus Christ, the crucified. It's fine to enjoy things. It's fine to enjoy the sunrises and the sunsets. It's fine to enjoy a juicy, buttery steak. It is fine to enjoy a plate, a mahi-mahi plate lunch. It is fine to enjoy ocean kayaking. It is fine to enjoy throwing a football. But what delights and thrills your soul? What is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that you go to bed thinking about at night? I think it might all be summed up in this question. Do you delight in what God delights in? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you love and of whom you approve. Help us, I pray, to delight in our Savior. To delight in our Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.